Well, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. <clears throat> Please take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the third chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. I'd like to begin by simply reading the, bi- the chapter in its entirety, Genesis chapter 3. And so it's with a great sense of privilege and honor that I invite you to hear and heed the life-imparting, hope-arousing, heart-enlarging, and soul-sobering words of the true and living God. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, 
and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Genesis chapter 3 has rightly been described in terms of three colors. It's known as the black chapter of the Bible, the black chapter of Scripture, and for good reason. The chapter tells the story of how sin and death entered God's perfect creation. It describes man's fall from his state of innocence. It describes humanity's first act of rebellion against God and their first act of treason against the king and the creator. It is the black chapter of the Bible. But it's also been referred to as the red chapter of the Bible because in it we have the first promise of a coming savior who although he will be wounded in his battle against Satan, will ultimately conquer him. But this victory, we know, will not come without the shedding of his own blood. And so it is the red chapter of the Bible. And finally, it's also known as the white chapter of the Bible. White, of course, being representative of the reality of hope. Hope. Not only does God leave humanity with the hope of a coming savior and serpent slayer, but after sin and death enter the world and God curses all of creation, and after God spells out the dreadful consequences of Adam's sin, Adam then turns and immediately names his wife Eve, which literally means life or life giver. And many scholars over the years have believed that in naming his wife Eve, Adam is expressing his hope in God's promise to crush the head of the serpent through one of their descendants. Not only that, but it's the white chapter of hope because after all of this, we read at the end of the account that God clothed Adam and Eve with skins, which would have required the death of an innocent animal which, of course, ultimately points again to the hope of God one day clothing his sinful people with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And so Genesis 3 is also known as the white chapter of the Bible where God introduces the hope of a coming Savior. So often when we think of the Christmas story, our minds tend to go back only as far as Bethlehem. But in all reality, the Christmas story goes beyond Bethlehem and begins back in the Garden of Eden. And the promise of a coming Savior actually comes to us in the pronouncement of a curse. 
The book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. It is the book of the beginning of the world, the beginning of the human race, the beginning of sin and death, the beginning of hope. And yet as dark and grim as Genesis chapter 3 is, it lucidly explains who we are as the human race and how we got here. So who are we? Well, Genesis 3 tells us. Although we were created to be image bearers of the living God, we are now fallen in sin, we are now dead in sin, blinded by sin, in love with sin, condemned in sin, and separated from the holiness of God because of our sin. That's who we are as a human race. When Adam sinned, he brought the entire human race down with him. Whether you like it or not, whether you say that's fair or not, this guy took us all down. Listen to the Apostle Paul from Romans chapter 5. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. The whole team gets penalized. Because of Adam, we all enter the world with a fallen nature. A nature that is opposed to God and opposed to his righteous will. This is known as original sin. We are born with desires and attitudes and dispositions of, in our hearts that scream for our independence from God. Every human being since Genesis chapter 3 has been born with a morally ruined character. And of course, this inherent sinfulness manifests itself in actual sins thoughts and words and actions and feelings that violate God's moral commands. You see, by nature, we trade God's glory for idols, and we trade his truth for lies. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. By nature, we are transgressors. We are wrongdoers. We are evildoers. We are criminals. We are lawbreakers. We are transgressors. We are trespassers. We are rebels. We are traitors. We are enemies of the living God before whom we stand without hope, without excuse, and without anything in ourselves to commend ourselves to God. And so we stand condemned in his presence. That's what the Bible teaches about who we are as the human race. We are debtors. And the debt that we owe to God to pay for the countless times that we have mocked his majesty, scorned his supremacy, and belittled his benevolence, oh, friends, an eternity of eternities in hell could not even come close to paying off this insurmountable debt. Can you feel the weight of the debt? The consistent cry of the Bible is that we need rescue. We need deliverance. We need salvation. And we need help from on high. And thanks be to God that in his magnanimous mercy, he has come to rescue and deliver and save and help us out of our miserable state. One of the tragic things about sin is that it's a disease that has the power to blind its victims to its very existence. One minister from a previous century once said that our greatest misery is that we do not know our misery. 
For those of you who are not in Christ this morning, who are still living in either secret rebellion or open rebellion against God, your greatest need this morning is to see and recognize your need for God's mercy in Christ. I wonder what would happen. I was in my study, I was thinking about all of you who are without Christ. I wonder what would happen if you were to escape the craziness and the busyness and the distractions of life for one hour and either sit or lay or walk in silence before God, asking Him to show you your need, your wretchedness, and your guiltiness before Him. And that very well, may, very well may be the very first step in the direction toward a new life in Christ. Asking Him to show you yourself. I would challenge you to do this as soon as possible. And may God have mercy on your soul. As we consider the Christmas story from the Garden of Eden this morning, we're going to focus on the first 15 verses of Genesis chapter 3 with the goal of giving most of our attention to verse 15. And as we unpack these 15 verses... I want to do so in six progressions. The craftiness of Satan, verses 1 to 5. The collapse of humanity, verses 6 through 8. The call of God, verse 9. The conviction of conscience, verses 10 and 11. The concealment of sin, verses 12 and 13. And then the curse of Satan, verses 14 and 15. And so let's begin, first of all, where the passage begins, with the craftiness of Satan, verses 1 to 5. Now the serpent, we read, is more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Up until this point, creation is charming and paradise is perfect. And we are not told of the origin of this serpent, or more importantly, the devil whose power is working through this serpent, this is how God chose to tell the story. But the first thing we note about this serpent is that he is crafty. Crafty. A word that by itself is not a negative word. In fact, it's the same Hebrew word used throughout the book of Proverbs to talk about the prudent man. But when it's used with reference to the serpent, it's seen in a negative light. It means that the serpent is cunning. He is deceitful. He is masterful when it comes to trickery and deceitfulness. He's a snake. The second thing you learn about this serpent is that he is created by God. He is more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And when we look back to the end of chapter 1, we read that God saw everything that he had made to include that beast, that serpent. And behold, it was very good. And that included serpents, assuming that there were more serpents in that day. But we're not told how this specific serpent is now evil. We're not told how this serpent is now hostile. We do know that Satan was an angel who led a rebellion against God and led a host of angels with him. We're going to look at that next week. And so we can conclude that somehow, in some way, Satan is present either within or as this serpent. Whether he transformed himself to look like a serpent or took possession of an existing serpent, 
The point is that we are intended to see this serpent as the devil, as Satan. That's the point. Next, notice the serpent's plan of attack. Rather than coming out, guns blazing, to contradict God, he begins by first questioning God. Verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see, Satan knew what God told Adam back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, when he said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But now, if you notice the words, Satan deceitfully reframes the situation. Instead of emphasizing the fact that the couple may eat from every tree, as God said, of the garden but one, Satan asks if God really forbade them from eating from any tree. You see the reframing? As he still does to this day, Satan wanted Eve to focus on God's prohibition rather than his provision. And so he's already painting God in a bad light. As if God created a vast garden of precious fruits and trees and put it all off limits. Did God really say you can't have any of this? But that wasn't the case. Well, he responds in verse 2. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, for whatever reason, Eve added the part about touching the forbidden tree, when God never said a word about touching it, or not touching it. And now, after questioning God, you'll notice, Satan intensifies his assault by now blatantly contradicting God. So he begins by questioning God, painting him in a bad light, and now contradicting God. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. There's the contradiction. God said you will surely die. Satan says you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of its fruit, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, as the father of lies, Satan lies to Eve and then attacks God's character, suggesting that God has selfish motives in seeking to keep something good from Adam and Eve. The fact is, yes, Eve's eyes would be opened, but not in a good way. Adam and Eve will indeed come to know evil, sadly, by becoming evil themselves. And then they will know, and then they will die, as God said that they would die. You see, the tempter's tactics are still the same thousands of years later. They're still the same today. He tempts people to sin against God by getting them to think about all of God's stern prohibitions while blinding them to all of God's sumptuous provisions. He emphasizes the things that God says we can't do while blinding us to the plethora of things that God has given us to enjoy to his glory. He questions God's will, God's motives, God's word, 
And when that proves to be ineffective, he blatantly contradicts God's will and God's word. And then he twists God's motives in order to paint him in a negative light as some sort of killjoy, as a God who doesn't deserve the complete loyalty and devotion of his creatures. He lies about the consequences of sin. He lies about the consequences of disobedience and where sin will lead us. The Puritan Thomas Brooks, in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, put it like this. Satan's device to draw the soul to sin is to present the bait and hide the hook. To present the golden cup and hide the poison. To present the sweet and the pleasure that may flow into the soul by yielding to sin and hide from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. He's a master at hiding the hook within the bait and making that bait look so appealing, so attractive, but as soon as you go for that bait, you feel the pain, the shame, the misery, and without repentance, eventually the wrath that will come from disobeying and walking and living in sin. <coughs> Friends, let us not be ignorant of Satan's designs. Well, after the devil deals the death blow to Eve, we move in the passage from the craftiness of Satan to the second heading, the collapse of humanity. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, note this, who was with her, and he ate. We tend to think that Adam was off naming animals or something at this point. Friends, he was with her. And this is further indicated in the Hebrew by the fact that when Satan is talking, you will not surely die, he's having this dialogue, he's speaking in plural form. He's talking to both of them while addressing Eve, the vulnerable one. He's addressing both of them because they're both there. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We sometimes think that the first sin was committed when Eve took that bite or whatever she did to take that fruit in her mouth. We think that's when the sin was committed. But what you need to understand is that Eve had already been deceived at this point. She had already sinned in her heart when she decided in her heart to heed the voice of the serpent and to disregard the command of God. So I would argue that the sin actually is committed between verses 5 and 6 when she made up her mind to disobey God. The devil had already taken her heart down a dangerous path. He already paved the way for her outward disobedience. The fact is, the tree probably was good for food. The fact is, it probably was a delight to the eyes. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9 said that out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And it goes on to say that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was in the midst of the garden. So it probably was good for food and it was beautiful to look at. 
But there was just one thing. It was totally off limits. That one thing is a massive thing, right? Beautiful, probably delicious, but it's off limits. No question about it. After everything God had created, he declared that it was good and very good. However, this tree was forbidden. It was probably delicious, probably beautiful to look at, but its fruit was off limits. That's like a lot of things in this world, huh? You might think it'd be good to have it. You think it's pleasant to look at, but there's this one thing. God commands you to stay away from it. And you can fill in the blank. Some have rightly classified Eve's downfall in terms of the Apostle John's words, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. You see, Eve saw that the tree was good for food, the desire of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, the desire of the eyes, and that it was to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life. And so she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. You see, she has already gone down in her thinking, gone down in her discernment, and so what she desires here are not good desires. We have an ironic picture here as well. You see, Adam and Eve were created to rule over the beasts of the field, were they not? To include this serpent. And as Greg Beale points out, Adam should have slain and thus judged the serpent in carrying out the mandate of Genesis 1.28 to rule and subdue, but instead, the serpent ended up ruling over Adam and Eve by persuading them with deceptive words. And here, in these simple words, we have the collapse of the human race. It sounds like a... a, a, a I mean, it sounds just like a story. But in this story, we have the entire collapse of humanity. Down into sin and death. Down into judgment. Down into condemnation. And down into ruin and devastation. Paul's theology in Romans 5 is very important at this point, And you don't want to miss it. Romans 5.15. Many died through one man's trespass. Speaking of Adam. The many, the human race. Romans 5.16. The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. And then verses 18 and 19. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. And then verse 19. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Notice the immediate results of their fall into sin in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This original nakedness that they had back in chapter 2, it symbolized their innocence. Naked and unashamed. And the man and the wife were both naked and we're not ashamed, Genesis 2.25. But at this point, their innocence is gone. Their eyes have been opened to sin by 
not watching sin happen out there, but now having committed it in here. They now have a knowledge of good that is now lost and evil because they have become evil themselves. Their innocence is gone, never to be regained. This points to the shame that they are living in now. Shame has been defined as a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. A painful feeling of humiliation or distress by knowing that you've done wrong. Well, notice that they immediately try to cover themselves up with fig leaves. I mean, this is instant. We tend to think that maybe they went down to the shop and, hey, you know, I got these leaves, can I, you know, no. Immediately, they, they try to cover themselves up. We've got to cover ourselves up. They're ashamed with fig leaves, which is a sad picture of attempting to cover up themselves. Notice next, not only shame and the loss of innocence, but verse 8, the next effect of sin. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Many commentators are puzzled by the, ver the, the, the wording here in the Hebrew, and many believe it's the afternoon. <coughs> and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God <coughs> among the trees, <coughs> excuse me, in the garden. <coughs> so now they're hiding from God. This is perhaps the worst of it all. The God in his presence his fullness of joy. They're hiding from him. <clears throat> the God who is the greatest of all givers, the fount of every blessing, they're hiding from him. They want nothing to do with him. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm so sorry. This is the collapse of humanity. And you know what? Humanity has been hiding from God ever since Genesis chapter 3. And if there is ever an instance where man and God are united, it is because God has sought out that man or that woman. But were it not for God's grace, we would still be hiding in our sin. We would still be hiding in the dark. We would still be hiding in our trespasses and sin until God in his light and in his mercy seeks us out. All praise to his glorious grace that he does that. Well, let's move on in the text. Therein is the collapse of humanity. Notice the call of God, verse 9. The call of God, verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? This is an om omniscient God. This isn't an ignorant God. He isn't wondering truly where Adam is at. He's wanting to engage Adam. He's wanting Adam to come forth and confess. The Lord delights in mercy, we are told in the Bible. And so we know that the proper response would have been for Adam to come back and fall on his face and plead for God's mercy. He delights to show mercy. God is engaging Adam here. Where are you? Where are you? And that question still is so relevant thousands of years later. Where are you today? Where are you? 
It's a simple question. Either you are in Christ or you are in sin and death, the realm of sin and death. Either you are in exile and banished from God, hiding among the trees of the garden, amongst the hidden sins in your life. You are hiding behind this sin and that sin. And God, in his mercy, still through people like me and people like the believers around you, are still calling to you to say, where are you? Where are you? Ask yourself that this morning. Where are you? In engaging Adam, God is wanting a confession from Adam, as we're going to see in the next verse. Notice, fourthly, as we move in our progression, the conviction of conscience. The conviction of conscience. Verse 10 and 11. And Adam said, I heard the sound, and look at the excuse here. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He's already evading the reality. He's already evading the whole thing. The reason he's hiding is because he has sinned against God, not because he's naked. The nakedness is the effect of the fall. The shame is the effect. He's not pointing to the cause. So already you see how sin distorts and twists and messes up our thinking and our reasoning powers. He says, I'm hiding because I was naked. That's not why he was hiding. Adam said, or God said in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Again, God is in ignorance here. He knows exactly what has happened. Who told you that you were naked? The fact is, his own conscience told him that he was naked. The fact that his eyes have been opened told him that he was now naked because he disobeyed God. He has a conscience, just like all of us have a conscience. God has implanted this reality called the conscience within our minds and our hearts. And it's a good thing. It's a good gift. The conscience literally means with knowledge. Con, the prefix, it means with Science means knowledge. Conscience is with knowledge. God has implanted us with this self-knowledge, this inner knowledge of right and wrong, truth and error, wisdom and foolishness. Who told you that you were naked? Adam's conscience is eating him up here. Eat as well. The next question, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So after the conviction of conscience, and by the way, this is so important, without conviction, there will be no conversion. Without any kind of conviction of sin, you will not be converted to Christ, which was one of the reasons I said earlier, one of the greatest things you can do, you who are outside of Christ this morning, is get alone before God in silence and ask Him to show you who you really are before His presence, before you stand before Him on that day of judgment. Ask Him to help you to see yourself before him now, before that day comes. And then have him call upon him for his mercy to save you. After the conviction of conscience, we move into 12 and 13, where we have now the concealment of sin or the hiding of sin. Look at how this works. Verse 12, the man said, the woman you gave to be with me. She gave me 
fruit of the tree and I ate. It's kind of like a double excuse here. He's blame shifting. Blaming God? Blaming Eve. The woman whom you gave me. And we don't know where the emphasis lies. The woman whom you gave me. Or the woman whom you gave me. We don't know where that is. Maybe it's both. The woman whom you gave me. Either way, he's making an excuse for his sin. So you, again, you see how sin is already affecting our first parents. They're hiding. They're ashamed. They're making excuses. They're not getting down to the bottom of the issue. They're dancing around the issue. And now he won't even accept responsibility for his sin. The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she took, she ate, and then she gave it to me. It's interesting that he calls Adam first. Where are you? He called to the man. One, God was the one, Adam was the one that God gave the initial command to previously. But moreover, Adam is responsible as the head of his family. He is responsible for his wife, responsible for her safety, her protection, her provision, her growth, everything. He's the head, and so he's responsible. He's held responsible. The woman whom you gave me. There's so many people today still making excuses for their sins. The parents that you gave me, God. The father that you gave me. The mother that you gave me. The family that you gave me. The environment that I was brought in. That's why I'm a sinner today. That's why I'm in the state I'm in today. Don't make excuses for your sin. The church that you've given me, I'd be doing much better if I was in a better church, Lord. The job that I'm, I'm in right now. Friends, don't ever make excuses for your sin. Don't ever blame your sin on other people. Don't blame your sin on other people. You, at the end of the day, are held responsible for your sin. You are accountable to God for your thoughts, your words, your actions. People will not go to hell in your place if you fail to repent. You will be thrown there. You will be dealt with. You will be called to account. You and you alone. Now, people have a play a factor. People do influence. People do shape your thinking. I get that. But at the end of the day, you have a conscience and you have a choice. We'll look at verse 13. Then the woman, or then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? What a question. What is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So now she's blaming the serpent. So this blame shifting is happening all over the place. This is the concealment of sin, and it happens still today. The serpent deceived me. He tricked me. He fooled me. He laid the bait before me, and I went in, and I took it, and I ate. Well, now we come to the end of the account this morning, at least for our time. We have seen the craftiness of Satan, the collapse of humanity, 
the call of God, the conviction of conscience, the concealment of sin, and now we come to the curse of Satan. And this is where we find the first glimmer of hope, ironically, in the form of a curse. Notice this. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this. It's interesting that the first person, entity, being, he confronts here in terms of a spelled out curse is the serpent. It all began with the serpent. However many years ago the fall from heaven to earth had happened, we don't know. We're not told. But he is the power behind all of this. He is the evil behind all of this. Yes, Adam and Eve sinned. Yes, they, they rebelled against their king and creator. Yes, they committed treason, high treason against the king of heaven. Yes, yes, yes to all of that. But here, God addresses the source. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. Notice that this curse transcends, it goes over just the serpent. It's to all the beasts, all the livestock. Cursed are you above all of them. They're cursed too, but you're cursed above all of them. You see that the curse is now spread to all of the animal world now. We're going to see later on in the curse to Adam. Well, you can read that later because we're not going to address it this morning. But the ground is cursed. We know at this point all of creation is cursed. All of creation now begins to have a, a time ticking down to its destruction. All of creation is a, a ticking time bomb now. Everything is disintegrating. Everything is decaying. Everything is now, as Romans chapter 8 says, subject or enslaved to bondage and corruption. Everything is now enslaved to being broken down. Everything, the galaxy, the world, everything around us. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. We don't know what this original serpent is. I read this book this week called The Serpent and the Serpent Slayer by Andrew Nacelli. It's really interesting. He, some argue that this is some form of a, an ancient dragon that once walked on its, you know, a, a, not on its belly, but walked on either all fours or two feet. We don't know exactly what this creature was, but up at, at this point now, he will go on his belly. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. This is not literal dust eating, but this is metaphorical, symbolic language for the fact that this is utter, utter, utter humiliation. Everywhere you go, you'll be eating dust. Utter humiliation. And now notice verse 15. Verse 15 is known as the Proto-Evangelion, or the first gospel. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Notice who plants the enmity. God creates this hatred between the devil and the woman. The devil already had it, but now the woman will intensely hate the serpent. Intensely hate Satan. He will put this enmity there. You see, God is the one who creates this enmity. He is the one who initially created light and darkness, and then he separated light from darkness. Now he is, in a spiritual sense, 
separating light from darkness. I will put enmity, hostility, animosity between you and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. Here in the very beginning of the book of the beginnings, God is marking out two lines of the human race, and only two lines. From this point on, there will be the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the devil. Or as John says, the children of God and the children of the devil. There are those who are children of light and those who are children of darkness. There's no other categories. You are either of Christ or you are of the devil. Doesn't mean you're necessarily possessed by the devil. Doesn't mean you dress in black and you listen to satanic music. You want to know what it means to be of the devil? You can be bright-eyed, you can dress like a, you know, you can dress so nice outwardly, but you can be of the devil by the fact that your heart rages against the living God. Your heart wants nothing to do with his righteous will for your life. That is satanic. We, 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 Satan has done such a good job of describing what truly is satanic today. You know, you got to look like a goth. you got to have this leather, black leather, and you have to have these tall boots. And, oh, that's satanic. No, satanic is just you wanting to live your life independent from a good God. That's satanic. And that's sinful. Between your offspring and her offspring, God says, I will put enmity. Now, this is interesting because some have detected what perhaps may be an allusion to conversion here or regeneration and how God is the one who puts the enmity in his people's hearts, enmity against sin and enmity against darkness and animosity against the devil. He puts it there. God says, I am separating light from darkness again in a spiritual sense between you and your descendants and the descendants of Eve. The line of faith from this point on. And we're going to see it in the, you see it in the very next chapter. You see the line of Satan, Cain, who is of the evil one, John tells us, who murdered his brother. He is of the evil one, a child of the devil, who murders godly Abel, the seed of the woman. And from that point on, there is this head-butting throughout all Scripture against these two lines, children of the devil and children of, of, of God, all the way down through redemptive history up until the coming of Christ. And that brings us to our last little section right here. <clears throat> Notice, <clears throat> he, singular, shall bruise your head. In the Hebrew, it literally means to crush. To crush. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In the form of a curse, God makes a promise, and I wonder, I, I wonder what Adam and Eve were thinking as they're hearing God address the serpent. One of our offspring is going to crush his head. One of our descendants is going to crush his head but not without a cost to himself. It says that he will have his heel crushed in the process. Now, what's the ultimately 
fatal blow here. Is it the heel being crushed or is it the head being crushed? It's the head being crushed. If your heel is crushed, you're not going to die. You're going to live. But if your head is crushed, that's it. The head in the Bible is a place of power and authority and control. And so God here in the very beginning, right in the midst of this tragic fall, this collapse into sin and death and misery, promises that this serpent will be defeated. This serpent will be overcome. And then, throughout the rest of the Bible, we see pictures of this. What's interesting is that when you begin to follow the storyline of the Bible, the Bible traces out essentially six offspring of the serpent, six categories of the serpent's offspring. And so when you read about Pharaoh in Egypt, you read about how he is described in terms of a dragon or some kind of sea serpent. Um, we read from history, Egyptian pharaohs wore headgear with an erect cobra in front, signifying divine power and protection. And so you see, as God brings his people out of Egypt and he taunts Pharaoh and his people, God uses language of crushing his head, crushing the serpent of Pharaoh and Egypt. And you even see this portrayed later on in who we think might be the descendant who will crush the head of the serpent, David, when he goes up against Goliath. When he goes up against Goliath. We read that Goliath is, is, is taunting God's people and we read something about his, in 1 Samuel 17, the way he was dressed, it says he was armed with a coat of mail. And in the Hebrew, it literally means an armor of scales, scale armor, scale armor. It's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to scales of a dragon or a fish. And so what's interesting is what we have in the picture of the King David, at the time, David, and his defeat of Goliath is that we have this offspring, and it literally says that that, that, that stone sunk into the forehead of Goliath. We have a picture of the, the serpent crusher going in and, and defeating Goliath, and but we know hundreds of years later the actual serpent slayer will come, and he will go head to head against the devil. And we read in Luke 22 that when Jesus was preparing for his crucifixion. He said to the chief priests and the elders who came to arrest him, have you come out against the robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour. And listen, this hour is the power of darkness. This was Satan's hour. This was where Genesis 3.15 has been leading all along and preparing all along, Satan is about to strike the heel of the Son of God, the offspring of Eve. And as he does so, it appears to be a defeat of tragic proportions, right? Jesus dies, breathes his last. The hour of darkness is celebrating but Jesus is 
perspective of it all comes out in John 12, 31. Just before all this, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Who is that? That's Satan, the ancient serpent. Now, as I go to the cross, the ruler of this world will be cast out. There's a cosmic battle taking place at the cross. This is why the Son of God appeared, was to destroy the works of the devil. We read in Hebrews chapter 2 that since therefore the children of God share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He went head to head with the devil. Yes, he crushed the devil crushed his heel, but Christ emerged victoriously. Three days later, rose from the grave. And what actually happened at the cross, as Jesus is being stripped and humiliated, what is really happening in the spiritual realm is this, Colossians 2.15. He was actually, at that time of his humiliation, he was disarming the rulers and authorities in the spiritual realm, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them by his cross. The offspring of the woman and the serpent go head to head and Satan has his head crushed. You say, well, he's still active, isn't he? Yes, but the victory, the, the, the war is already over. We have these lingering little battles here and there, but the war is already won. And it's only a matter of time. When God wraps this thing up. And now, through the church, Jesus is still crushing the serpent's head. Every time a sinner is brought from the realm and the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, Satan's head is crushed again. But by the people of God, empowered by the Son of God, we're reminded of Romans chapter 16, verse 20, where Paul says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What we have in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, is the Christmas story from Eden about the birth, the coming of a serpent crusher who will come and undo the works of the devil. You say, well, you're, you're, you're really drawing a lot out of that verse. That's because the Bible from that point draws a lot out of that verse. So many promises come out of this curse. The day is coming, dear friends, when because Jesus has already crushed his head, the serpent's head, the end of time will come and the devil will be thrown into the lake that burns with fire and sulfur and all his children will be there with him. Every child of the devil will be there with him as well. Friends, I ask you again this morning, where are you this morning? Are you in and united to this offspring of the woman who has come and crushed the head of the serpent? And through you and your life continues to crush the head of the serpent as he liberates his slaves and brings them into the kingdom? Our friend, are you still captivated by the serpent's temptations, everything he throws at you in the world, are you just mesmerized? 
Oh, another shiny thing from Satan. This is so lovely. Are you dazzled by the things he brings before you? Or have your eyes been opened by God? Are your eyes being opened by God to see and savor the infinite beauty of Christ and the world to come? That is where you want to be. And you can be there by turning from your sins and calling upon this serpent crusher to save you. And all who call upon him will be saved. None of those who call upon him will be ashamed. The same Lord is Lord of all, and he bestows his riches on all who call upon him.